Hello, I'm Andrew. Hello, I'm Lisa. Welcome to episode 64 of... Round the Archives. Well, we wanted to get it out before the end of the year, didn't we? We did. Way. Well, yes. There's a lot to pack in yes. with this episode, so no hanging about. So here's Martin Holmes with... The Army Game. <laughs> Gazing at this lunatic box when you should be on duty. Look at it, look at it. This box of beetle bob fridges invented to fill the heads of vacant idiots. And stop that when I'm talking to you. Switch it off. You're going to stay up as long as I've got breath in my body. You're not having any television on this camp. Oh, yes, indeed. Charge is stopping armed members of the forces from doing their duty by means of television. Having a television in the house without permission. I'm going to stop this television laugh. Believe me, it's the last thing I do. Three days confined to camp and the television set. <laughs> Confiscated. Oh, that's a bit strong, sir. We ain't paid for the old television yet. Good, then you can send it back and get it off the camp. But you don't realise, sir, this television, oh, it's a marvellous thing. It provides culture and education and uplift and all that kind of ball. Silence! It'll stop you from doing your military soldiering. What is what you are here for? But, sir, some of our most famous soldiers have appeared on television. There's uh, Field Marshal Montgomery, General Sir Brian Oryx, Vincent Jen. <laughs> Honestly, sir, the day may come when your lovely face appears on that there screen. That'll be the day indeed. Indeed the day that will be, believe you me. If ever my face appears on this screen of Satan, yeah, you lot can have this television set back for good and all. You're joking. I'm not, as a promise. Now, get on, get sweeping up here. I often go on a familiar journey when I crack open a box set of a television series that I've not viewed before, especially one which has a lot of episodes that need getting through in order to experience the whole lot. It usually starts off with an eager, hmm, this seems interesting, I'm glad I got this, but sometimes it can take a very swift diversion to, it's getting a bit annoying now, or even, can I really be bothered watching any more of this nonsense, before settling into a more cosy appreciation of, I'm rather enjoying these characters and wanting to see more of them in action, and a genuine sense of regret when the episodes finally run out. There are many and varied reasons why DVD sets of certain old TV shows end up lurking on the shelves at our house. Often it's simply because I feel that certain shows ought to be on my shelves if I am to really consider myself to be a fan of proper archive TV. You know, the sort of telly that you really have to have access to if you ever want to have your opinions taken seriously in the circles that you choose to move in. Others I acquire for completely different reasons. After all, I'm not exactly known for my interest in light entertainment, variety, or even sitcoms. I do have several of these stone-cold classics on my shelves, Blackadder, Father Ted, Faulty Towers, Porridge, and the like, but I'm not generally drawn to them, and certainly rarely just take them down from the shelf to while away a sorry evening. Sometimes I've acquired some shows simply because they sound interesting and maybe they've become finally available at such a stupidly low price that it seems almost ridiculous to ignore that itch for any longer and instead grab the opportunity to have a look and see what all the fuss was about. So it was with The Army Game, a sitcom made by Granada Television in the latter half of the 1950s that ran for over 150 editions between June 1957 and June 1961. 
and is widely regarded as being the first ITV sitcom. So it's either the one that started it all, or the one you can blame for a lot of what followed, depending upon your point of view. Looking at the broadcast dates, I did briefly wonder why it wasn't around any earlier than this, but of course Granada TV itself didn't exist before May 1956, and independent television, finally providing as it did an alternative to the BBC, didn't exist before September 1955, and even then took a while to become fully national in range. This was an era when Granada was really learning how to make a weekly comedy series for the entire independent television network. And sometimes what remains for us to see does really demonstrate how much was being learned during that more primitive era of often live performance. At this point, most people still got much of their broadcast comedy through the medium of radio, and whilst certain shows had successfully adapted to the new visual medium, this was a steep learning curve, so that these early television sitcoms are very much a hybrid of what worked on radio, with the use of old faithful rib ticklers like catchphrases and inner monologues having varying degrees of success, and they were also sometimes stealing from some of the techniques once employed by silent cinema. Whether that's a good thing, or whether it all very quickly gets rather tiresome, will affect how much you enjoy the jolly wheezes and wacky antics of our regular army heroes, the various inhabitants of Hut 29, and there's also the perennial problems of ideas and attitudes being very much of their time and certain situations and storylines being all rather too familiar from other comedies you might have enjoyed, often ones that were made long after this one, built upon its successes and were broadcast in far more sophisticated times to viewers and listeners who had also grown up a little as television itself had done. That it manages to produce a reasonable hit rate of decent episodes alongside the occasional dud is to be admired, and of course different viewers at different stages in their own lives and experiences will have different ideas as to quite which those duds actually are. Personally, I wasn't too keen on several shows that must have seemed, on paper at least, to be rather good ideas. The dressing up as historical character stuff in the good old days just came across as rather self-indulgent and tiresome, and the one with an MP coming to visit the camp, a question in the house, just seemed to fall apart, as did A Piece of Cake, the baking shenanigans which does tend to stretch the notion of comedy well off its tightrope and into utter despair, and there's a risible effort, including a bugle entitled Bull by the Horn, which is well worth avoiding. But that's just my opinion. Others might choose those as their top four episodes because reactions to comedy are a very personal thing. And as the series went on and those endless weeks of scheduling needed to be filled, that group of writers and perhaps even some of the actors must have been getting increasingly desperate to find new and exciting ways to write stories that took part in places other than that hut and that office from time to time. And let's be honest here. Putting the regular characters into different absurd situations each week and having the odd running gag would also serve series like Dad's Army and a whole host of other series very well in later years. Because the sit of this particular sitcom is an army base which forms part of the surplus ordnance department based at Nether Hopping in the innuendo smuggling town of Itchwick and most particularly Hut 29, in which a small but often recast group, usually a quartet, of unruly soldiers go about their antics, often involving gambling, other minor illegal activities, or simply getting one over on the officers. Comparisons to the antics of Sergeant Bilko in the Phil Silvers show at both Fort Baxter and later Camp Fremont would, of course, at this stage seem to be most unfair, although it's possible given that Bilko began its television run in the US in 1955, that the writers were looking at the success of its overseas equivalent and thinking that a British variant might not be the worst idea in the world. 
Often the situations are not particularly army-based shenanigans, but more the kind of scrapes and schemes that might have played out in more domestic sitcoms of both this and later eras. But that's just the nature of the sitcom, really. Very few get to play out all of their stories totally within the actual situation that they are created in, although the ones that do are often the better for it. This sort of comedy situation would later be revisited in the 1970s national service sitcom Get Some In. A more nostalgic look back at the same era, made at a time when the BBC was having particular successes with army-based sitcoms set in the Second World War, as opposed to the army game, for which the situation was actually very up to the minute and now, back in the actual 1950s. Mind you, how 1950s audiences viewed television is often a mystery to me. By the time we get to the most surviving era of the show, the original cast that made the army game so popular have all but disappeared and replaced largely by similar but different characters. But the audience either didn't notice or didn't care all that much about that sort of thing. After all, when you went to the theatre a lot, as many of the viewers of that time would have done, you were used to actors chopping and changing at the theatre, so maybe such things didn't matter quite so much, although I imagine that early television series offered in much the same way as modern ones do, when a much-loved or iconic member of the cast chooses to move on and the audience really don't take to their replacement. However, I suppose that because National Service was basically a two-year stretch and regular army soldiers like the characters in the army game were forever getting posted off to somewhere new, maybe this continually revolving approach to casting did more accurately reflect the nature of being in the army at the time. Well, at least the more absurd and comical aspects of it at any rate. The writers on this show include such future comedy writing giants as Sid Collin, Larry Stevens, John Antrobus, Marty Feldman, Barry Took, John Junkin and Talbot Rothwell, amongst others. So this show has a serious comedy pedigree, even if the occasional episode struggles to rise above the ordinary. Because of the nature of archive television, particularly of the 50s and 60s, not all of the episodes of the Army Games still survive, although 50, or around a third of the total produced, have survived although often in not the greatest of shape, and they are sometimes missing useful chunks like the end credits. Some sources claim 52 episodes exist, but both The Informers and Private Cinders from the final series are still AWOL as far as official releases are concerned. 50 episodes are available via a network DVD release that compiles two earlier volumes into one handy six-disc package that does play rather fast and loose with whatever running order for the episodes that you might have expected, so that when you do finally get to find out what survives from series one, perhaps you will be disappointed. Although, Perhaps that sort of confusion ought not to surprise us, as different sources claim that it ran to either four or five series, depending on whether the initial 39 episodes are counted as one series or two. So you can take your pick on which of those you want to take as your method of counting. So with that sort of archiving madness afoot, maybe a slightly random order is the best way to approach the show. For simplicity's sake, however, I'm going to stick with the idea that it consisted of four longer series rather than five, and maintain that it is all of series three that perhaps surprisingly survives, alongside about a third of the fourth and final series, and a few random editions from the first two years. Certainly in this particular release, it takes until disc four for the viewer to finally reach the two or three remaining series from what I'm calling the first series, which are the ones that star a certain Mr William Hartnell, despite him being featured front and centre on the cover artwork. The Army Game was, of course, a sitcom that gained almost legendary status amongst certain Doctor Who fans just because it features William Hartnell playing the nominally determined Sergeant Major Percy Bullimore in a regular television role about half a decade before his appearance as the first Doctor Who, a role which historically seems to have cemented that notion that he was known for playing gruff army types before being given the opportunity to shine and twinkle as the first incarnation of television's Time Lord although he's never identified as such during what is, when you look at it, his surprisingly short tenure. 
And it turns out that this tenure on the army game is surprisingly relatively short too, given how often it gets mentioned whenever his name comes up, at least if you choose to believe the patchy information you can glean from websites like Wikipedia and IMDb. However, with so few episodes surviving, it's possible that such information can only be based upon what is actually available to be seen, and without more concrete evidence, perhaps such sources prefer to err on the side of caution. Despite the notion of him being more closely identified with the army game, William Hartnell played Bullymore for the first season alongside Geoffrey Sumner's pig-obsessed Major Upshot Bagley, and they would both return to the show in its final series. Mind you, when you do finally reach those three first series episodes that feature Hartnell with his name at the top of the bill and directly bellowing at the viewers from the very start in the opening credits, it is an utter joy to remind yourself just what an adept player of comedy he was. After all, he did spend a lot of his early career filming short film comedies, but to see his comic timing in those few episodes we can still watch is truly delightful, and he seems to be having a ball playing them. The army game, it is claimed, was inspired by the 1958 film Private's Progress featuring Ian Carmichael, and and in its earliest season especially, does seem to share a lot of its DNA and its cast list with Carry On Sergeant, the very first Carry On film made after the Army game had first aired, which featured William Hartnell, Norman Rossington and Charles Hawtrey. Several of these actors alongside another Carry On stalwart, one Bernard Breslau playing Private Popeye Popplewell, made up a successful enough set of characters in the first season to be given an Army game-style movie made by Hammer and entitled I Only Asked. In the early days of the army game, Norman Rossington played Private Cupcake Cook and Charles Hawtrey played Private Professor Hatchet. And him being the comparatively clever one does rather belie so many of the other characters you might have seen him play. Unusually, both of these characters were also played by other actors in some episodes, apparently, which does once again point out the very strange nature of long-running television shows back at the dawn of ITV. Maybe the trains to Manchester weren't running on those particular weeks, or maybe they were unwell and there was little time to reschedule. But there's a lot that is strange about the live television shows of this era, like the fact that occasionally live sound effects are played in over the action with varying degrees of success, and the fact that you are very aware of there being a live studio audience hooting and hollering mere feet away from the action. Television can also look so very homemade at times during this era, and even in some instances well into the 1960s, when most of it was performed live and broadcast straight into people's homes, warts and all, without any opportunity for retakes in order to tidy it up. In a lot of cases, it does resemble live theatre, which, to be honest, often it is not dissimilar to. And you do get the occasional moment when you spot actors waiting for the camera light to either go on or for the shot to cut away from their particular piece of the action. And even respected film and television directors like Gordon Fleming, who worked on the third series of the show a lot, could display moments of apparent ineptitude when disaster strikes. For example, there's a particularly bad moment when our heroes are trying to access a safe in Never Volunteer, when the zoom to a clock face to indicate time passing is so dreadfully executed that you have to see it to believe it, and the all-round terribleness of the episode A Piece of Cake, in which our heroes, perhaps unsurprisingly, attempt to bake a cake, must have given everyone involved in it nightmares for years to come. And of course, there's that other rather tricky matter of shooting the end credits live, which leaves many episodes with hardly any credits at all, which is a bit annoying when you're trying to identify a particular guest actor, or which looks so shoddy or minimal that you wonder why they even bothered trying. Maybe some of these have been cut for overseas sales, or maybe the episode just overran, or the caption roller had been left in the wrong position after the rehearsal. Who knows? But it's certainly fun for anyone who's interested in such things to see how something as seemingly simple as adding the end captions of a TV show evolves from static cards via roller captions to overlaid captions even across a few episodes of a show like this one. 
Then you get nice touches like costume elements created for one particular episode, like Flugger's monogrammed pyjamas, continuing into some of the subsequent episodes, which gives a certain amount of continuity and grounding to this otherwise artificial world. There are also fun things to spot as you rattle along, like a passing Heidi hi ho de ho exchange amidst the psychiatry shenanigans of the Mad Bull from Series 1, and peculiar contemporary pop culture references like an exchange resembling the yes-no interlude, pastiches of then-current films like The Angry Silence, In the Feud, which also features a favourite character actor of mine, John Sharp, or a nod towards Marilyn Monroe, when a chance to meet the film starlet Marilyn Mansley drives much of the plot of The Long Walk. Even Nikita Khrushchev gets a nod in the surprisingly political A Touch of the Other, which also makes an oblique reference to the Cambridge spiring in a slightly topical moment. Some of these references might bewilder the modern viewer, but they no doubt struck a chord with audiences at the time. There's also a lovely moment when Claude Snudge's domestic arrangements occasionally include a kind of foretelling of other relationships in Granada's later Coronation Street, when he makes a reference to a muriel in a scene involving domestic home decor. So what is it that draws us towards such shows? For me, mostly it's because they represent a slice of television history that is all too fragmented, but also because it gives us a chance to see early performances of a great number of actors who are destined to become far more familiar screen faces. One of the first faces you see on Cracking Open the DVD collection set, which gathers together that which survives of the army game, is the Irish actor Harry Taub, playing Private Dooley, who, given the strange nature of this release, or the show itself, then gets an introductory episode several episodes later, although it is often the case with the army game that you need to keep on your toes, as, like in regular comedy, the regular actors were often seen playing other characters in episodes, sometimes certainly given the ragged archive and the positioning of episodes on the discs, not that far removed from the ones you've just been watching. Both Frank Williams and Dick Emery turn up as regulars later on in the series after first playing several sundry characters in previous years, although Harry Morgan did much the same thing before playing Colonel Potter in MASH, so perhaps it's not that unusual an idea after all. Featuring in the majority of these episodes is the rather wonderful Harry Fowler as Corporal Flogger Hoskins, because characters by this stage often needed to have a wacky nickname, whose eye-rolling performance sometimes tends to suggest a certain amount of reliance on cue cards, or just playing to the audience, but despite attempting to be a lovable rogue, actually gets very annoying very quickly, in that I wouldn't want anyone like that living next door to me, kind of a way. And his follow flogger catchphrase, accompanied by a peculiar twirling point of the finger, obviously seemed like a good idea at the time. Over the course of the third series, he also develops moments of slipping into an arch and sinister Moriarty-style voice whenever he's planning something suitably devious, which seems to be something of a nod towards Peter Sellers in The Goon Show. Although for every throwback, there's also a look forward. After all, it's not beyond the realms of the imagination to think that the Radio Hamish antics scene in Are You Receiving Me might just have inspired the Radio Ham edition of Hancock's final BBC television series. Flogger is, basically, an almost like-for-like replacement for Michael Medwin's earlier character, the equally smug chancer and schemer Corporal Springer, who featured in the first series. Although they both feature in the second series, so it's easy to imagine, given that all of series two is missing, that Springer taught flogger pretty much everything he knows. Mario Fabrizi playing Lance Corporal Ernest Moosh Merriweather in an easy Mockney style that has much more substance than many of the parts he seemed to get in Hancock's Half Hour, like that thankless 12th juror in its 12 Angry Men episode, and belies the notion that his strong Italian accent must have restricted his options. He seems to swiftly and seamlessly replace Dooley after his surprisingly short run as part of the Hut 29 Quartet, and when Merriweather also quite suddenly gets posted, he is replaced by the surprisingly bland 
the private Billy Baker, as played by Robert Desmond, only to then pop up playing a confused Italian tourist in the Pen Pals Anonymous episode a few weeks later, and return, without fanfare, as Moosh shortly after that, and Baker is never seen or mentioned again. When you look at the surprisingly tragic and short life of Mario Eggio Pantaleone Fabrizi, it's possible to imagine that his sudden absence was perhaps because of the death of his father in 1959 and his inheritance of the title of Visconti, and yet he didn't get long to endure that burden, as he was apparently killed by a stress-related illness in 1963 without reaching the age of 40 years old. Blogger and Mouchard, accompanied by the gormless northern knit who replaced Bernard Breslau's gormless knit, one private Leonard Bone, as played with varying levels of ineptitude by the sunken-chested, perpetually thin, boggly-eyed and apparently toothless Ted Loon, who had a variable career and died at the age of 47 way back in 1968. Whilst his irregular line of ooek as he realises he said something he really shouldn't have is something of a joy, thankfully his mirth-swallowing weekly moment of reading his latest letter from home seems to be quickly abandoned, although it does occasionally resurface, unfortunately, depending upon which writer is on duty that week. And he does get occasional moments to shine in episodes like The Man Who Never Was, where he also plays his own twin brother in another scheme that Flogger designed to get him off the hook for abandoning his post. At this point in the series, the commanding officer presiding over the camp is supposedly another twin, Captain Timothy R. Pocket, another of nether-hopping sequence of eternally dim commanding officers, as deliciously played in a very familiar style by Frank Williams, whose later, bolder appearances as another Timothy, the Reverend Farthing in Dad's Army, may have rather overshadowed his other work. Often, at least in the early days, there is much breaking of the fourth wall as characters address the audience at home directly, which is yet another example of TV comedy making its first faltering steps at adapting from the radio medium to a more visual style. But of course, the centrepiece of the series at this point is the pairing of Alfie Bass as Private Montague, excused Boots Bisley, alongside Bill Fraser as Sergeant Major Claude Snudge, both of whom would later feature in a very successful Civvy Street spin-off from the army game Bootsy and Snudge, which itself completed three long series in the early 1960s and even got resurrected with limited success in 1974. They are the stars of the show as first and second build in the opening credits and get individual screens, preceded by a single gunshot, telling us so, as befits their star status. Other actors, ones lower in the sometimes peculiar-seeming credits pecking order, get to share their screen credit after two gunshots, even if their role in the show is proportionately larger than those who appear earlier. I imagine this had a lot to do with when specific actors had joined the show, really, and by the time the third series episodes were airing, Alfie Bass had been there a long time, with Bootsy having joined the show right back in those Hartnell years, although the almost childlike persona Alfie Bass seems to adopt in later series seems to be a throwback to the similarly childlike personality of Bernard Breslau's Popeye in the earlier ones, when Alfie's character was written somewhat differently. Certainly by the time episodes like the ho-hum boxing-themed Tiger Bisley comes along, Alfie Bass is most definitely at the centre of the action, and the rest of the quartet are beginning to look very much sidelined, although, to be fair, it does seem as if the scripts are being written to favour different characters as the lead storyline in specific episodes, and certain pairings of actors do seem to establish rather successful temporary double acts within the episodes, which often tend to work rather well. Alfie Bass was actually a pretty brilliant actor, as much of his later work shows, and he plays a particularly good dramatic part in the opening episode of Gideon's Way, for example. But it's entertaining to see him here every so often going into full-on, unrestrained, wacky comedy mode, and he occasionally overdoes it, playing to the audience and cameras alike from time to time like the star of the show he so obviously believed he was. 
several attempts are made at giving him his own catchphrase from his various inept threats to give someone a punch up the bracket or hooter or throat to the regular knowing aside of he will be disappointed and more than once episodes do seem to fizzle out in an almost Monty Python manner with an almost apologetic still never mind eh to feebly end the episode and fans of another iconic TV show might be surprised to see him make so much use of jelly babies for comic effect. Bootsy even gets to perform a lot of business with the ventriloquist dummy version of Sergeant Major Snudge, which does seem a little self-indulgent, to be honest with you. But then again, these writers are having to churn out nearly 40 of these things every year, so any little repeated comedy tricks and running gags that could fill some airtime must have seemed like a gift from the television gods when the next deadline was looming. By the time the TV Panto Bootsarella segment featuring the cast of television's The Army Game airs on an edition of Chelsea at Nine in the early part of January 1960, Alfie is obviously the star of the show, at least as far as the general public are concerned. Chelsea at Nine was Monday night's big variety offering broadcast live from Granada TV's newly converted studio in the former Chelsea Palace Theatre and was hosted at that time by Bernard Braden. It consists naturally of the usual ghastly variety cheesy shenanigans that used to fill so much airtime back then and once seen it's rather difficult to ever unsee it. However, if you do go there, it really does go some way to providing you with a contextual idea of just how big and how popular both the army game in general and Alfie Bass in particular were at that point in time, if the audience reaction to certain characters and catchphrases is anything to go by. And whilst it's a quite excruciating 20 minutes of television to endure, you perhaps do need to see it to simply understand the army game's cultural significance in the wider ITV landscape. Bill Fraser is, of course, another star turn, and whilst his beady-eyed and blusteringly belligerent performance as Sergeant Major Claude snudges off in the butt of the jokes, and he has the often thankless task of playing somebody utterly unlikable and must portray the antagonist of those cheeky young scamps we are expected as the audience to be on the side of, he imbues his character with just enough charm and heart to make him another much-loved television character, successful enough to be paired with Alfie Bass as Bootsy in that long-running sequel. Snudge's deliberate mispronunciation of words were obviously a character trait, but his wholesale approximations of the lines in the script from time to time were perhaps less so. But there is little doubt that it is an astonishingly enjoyable performance, and Bill Fraser often plays direct to the audience in a very knowing way, and seems really very aware of his character's strengths and weaknesses. And to be fair, there are a lot of fluffed lines in this show from just about everyone involved. And it can all seem to get a little bit random at times as the actors flounder around in search of their actual words. But that's just the nature of making this type of live, or at least as live, television, I suppose. And they certainly weren't likely to be hanging around looking for many retakes if anything did go wrong. Even if and when it happened during those awkward and perhaps directorially unwise moments when the pre-recorded voiceovers are piped in and the actors have to silently perform to the words to the best of their abilities, no matter what went wrong with the cameras, the sound or a thousand and one other factors that might mess everything up for them. And there's a lot of fun to be had in watching those actors in that situation and perhaps that fear and desperation actually creates moments of inadvertent comedy gold as other members of the cast try not to crack up and the words are eventually at least vaguely suggested in order to keep the programme bubbling along towards some kind of scripted conclusion. It cannot be easy when one of your fellow actors sometimes meanders off into some interminable waffle as they make a vague stab at getting something resembling their lines out and keeping a comedy ball in the air when the words that set up the joke are only vaguely there would have been extraordinarily difficult, I imagine. 
As the series progresses, there are some forced attempts at creating new catchphrases, and few of them seem to take as well as that I only asked did in the early days. And you can almost taste the desperation behind that continual repetition of follow flogger or Timothy Pocket's occasional ooh mummy. The hands-on face, who done that, seems to be a particular misfire in that regard, as does that ridiculous attempt at the over-convoluted salute first tried upon Harry Taub, which gets repeated to less and less effect until it is quietly abandoned. But such moments were, I suppose, still continued to be the comedy norms of the time, even as you can detect the comedy growing more sophisticated in style to a level where, as in the Happy New Year edition, involving the continuous substitution of bottles of hooch for bottles of whiskey, they can almost give a show like Blackadder goes forth a run for its comedy money, way back at the very dawn of the 1960s. Across the run of the series, a whole swathe of guest actors turn up, most of them looking terribly young, like Fulton Mackay in that same New Year edition, who utterly fails to avoid the Scottish stereotyping, and Philip Latham, who shows up as a prosecuting officer in the Bisley Court Martial episode. Turning up as Snudge's wife, and fans of the later Bootsy and Snudge series might have been given pause by that revelation, was Marjorie Rhodes, whose world-worn face was so very familiar from appearances in so many series, but who I recognised as having been Ma West in the 1957 film classic Hell Drivers. Bird noises at this stage for Snudge's pet budgerigar, Cadwallader, were provided, of course, by Percy Edwards, who made a career out of doing that kind of thing, which is nice work if you can get it. He also played the voice of a pig in the series, by the way. Other semi-regular appearances include very early career sightings of Geoffrey Palmer, who turns up quite regularly, often whenever they need a random sergeant or corporal or red cap to turn up for one line to drive the plot along. And that troubling presence of Arthur Mullard turns up from time to time as a gormless heavy. I'm also pretty sure I spotted Nigel Green, later Nayland Smith in the Fu Manchu film series in one episode, wearing a beard as a salty sea dog, although, given the damaged nature of the surviving prints, there were no end credits on that particular episode, so it was difficult to be certain. In the rather fun Christmas episode, Miracle in Hut 29, the guest Santa, because in all of the Miracle on 49th Street pastiches, it is the real Santa, boys and girls, is played by Philip Ray, hidden behind the obligatory beard, another survivor of the 12 Angry Men in Hancock's Half Hour, who some listeners might know best as Professor Eldred in Doctor Who, The Seeds of Death. Rather joyfully, there's also a chance to see a young Bernard Cribbins playing an escaped convict in Don't Send My Boy to Prison, showing the kind of lovable mixture of comic timing, grit and steel that only he could. The army game exists in an era when the BBC was still offering up Hancock's Half Hour on television, as well as on the radio, and the airwaves were still full of shows like The Goon Show, many of which were sharing an altogether far more anarchic view of forces humour as several former actual soldiers moved on with their lives and found themselves writing weekly comedy scripts, either for the BBC or even, because the pay was better, that new fangled ITV thing. And forces humour it is. Often terms like taffy and jock and even gollywog are flung about with the casual abandon of an era that was unaware of how offensive they might someday be, not least because the nature of such all blokes together barrack room banter was pretty much normal for a generation who had either served in the forces themselves as recently as a dozen years earlier, or were currently either serving or knew someone who was serving out their required dose of national service. Women, when they do feature at all, which is rarely, are usually the feared battle axes to their spouses, or maternal figures to the boys, or, of course, the birds, in inverted commas, that our heroes are chasing that week. These lads, eh? Shish. 
and such is the desperation for new storylines that certain situations get repeated, albeit slightly rewritten, so the hilarious situation of four female women's Royal Army Corps racks members being accidentally posted to Nether Hopping in one of the surviving Hartnell episodes and the various antics that ensue over bed-sharing and using Heaven Helpers mice to frighten them off is replayed almost beat for beat in Goodnight Ladies a couple of years later. This phenomenon can be somewhat disconcerting when you think you've seen an episode before only to find out that the one you're currently watching was made before the one you're trying to remember having seen in a sneakily future Time Lordish way. There's even the obligatory eye candy of the smiling naffy girl at the intermission as played with good humour by Anne Taylor who opens up the shutters for the tea break at the ad break which is presumably still seeming to be something of a novelty back then and slams them down again as the programme resumes. This may have occasionally been a film insert, but subtle differences in things like positions of the large tea mug, hairstyling, and camera focus make the viewer aware that she was brought in every week just to do this, and she does get more screen credits than several other cast members, which does rather confirm this. Occasionally those ad break bumpers would be tweaked slightly to reflect the main plot. In the April Fool edition, a prank is played on her jamming the shutters, and the mug that she wrangles is occasionally customised, and for the episodes involving ho-hum, a boxing match, she is seen sporting a black eye, which is of course not hilarious at all, although the viewers in the 50s might have still thought so, and actually seems kind of unfortunate and suggests a more troubled home life for the poor woman to perhaps more discerning modern viewers. Anne even gets a speaking part in Bootsarella, so her own impact into the popular culture of the time should not be underestimated, although she does get replaced by several other women doing the same job when the series returns for that fourth and final run. Because the third series is the one of which most still exists, it is, however, far too easy to concentrate too much on those episodes and forget that the other versions of the show that it manifested itself as in other seasons exist. Series 3 ends with two episodes from different extremes of what the show had become. There's the rather preposterous Out of This World, in which Bootsy imagines himself to be the first man on the moon, and his army colleagues are pictured as the very oddest sort of cheap science fiction aliens, and includes a three-eyed alien played by Bill Fraser and called Eggdons. See what they did there? To be honest, I never imagined that I would be seeing a selection of late 1950s NASA training footage in an episode of the Army Game of all places. This is followed by a final episode in which mutually loathing Bootsy and Snudge are trapped for a week or more in the sitcom staple of adjacent hospital beds, which does seem to have inspired that spin-off and Alfie Bass signs off with a cheery bye-bye, so I guess that he already knew that he wouldn't be back. Once you've got so very used to Claude Snudge, it does come as something of a shock to the system when Bullymore and Upshot Bagley and his pig suddenly reappear at the start of the fourth series. And after the somewhat extreme and occasionally cartoonish antics of Alfie Bass and Bill Fraser towards the end of that series, it does rather jar because William Hartnell suddenly seems to be cut out of a totally different form of acting cloth and the wonderfully vague Geoffrey Sumner even needs the occasional audible prompt. Although the running gag of the offering a whiskey that Bullymore never actually gets business he does alongside Hartnell across the series is, suggestions of making light of alcoholism aside, an utter joy, and shows both characters quickly hitting their stride. The vagueness of Upshot Bagley does occasionally remind me of McLean Stevenson's Henry Blake in the first three seasons of MASH, which probably shows that army humour is quite universal, and Sumner's return to the show might suggest that the writers had a whole load of pig-related jokes left over, and saved up from when those characters first departed. The eight, or nine, episodes surviving from that final year that are available seem like a very different programme to that which I've previously been talking about, but it might very well resemble the first run from three years earlier rather more closely, which might have been what the producer was trying for. 
When so much of a show's archive is missing, it's really difficult to make accurate comparisons. It certainly still manages to very much resemble the earlier incarnation of the show, for which those three fragments still exist, and the DVD release itself tops off the eccentric running order of their DVD box set with what is occasionally suggested to be a surviving fragment from Series 2, Officer material, although given that it shares opening titles and cast members that only feature in Series 4, that seems unlikely. In fact, that final season is such a stylistical change from the one before that you imagine viewers turning off in droves, which might explain the creation of Bootsy and Snudge to attempt to lure them back. Although by the end of the series, Sumner and Hartnell do seem to have re-established themselves, relaxed a little, and do make quite a charming and amusing double act themselves. Equally, it might have been a genuine attempt to make the show more like it used to be, after the wayward antics of those two characters might have been perceived to have pushed it too far into absurdity. It's really hard to say, although Geoffrey Palmer still turns up, playing a police officer one week, a reporter the next, amongst various other sundry characters, and Dick Emery is very good as the new regular character, Private Chubby Catchpole. Sadly, Frank Williams does seem to be rather sidelined to a much more supporting role, although he is occasionally parachuted in to take over the commanding officer part, sometimes even midway through an episode, and the packing crate that serves as his new desk seems to be highly symbolic somehow. There are a few familiar faces on the guest list too, including Faulty Towers Major, Ballard Barclay, although he's playing a colonel in this. And you get to see character acting stalwarts like Keith Marsh and Blake Butler in early roles. The final series does seem to be simultaneously far more rushed, less well rehearsed and sometimes cheaper, and yet can also appear a little more expensive given that there do seem to be a lot more soldiers orbiting around our main cast as supporting artists to make this rather unbelievable army base perhaps seem more believable. All in all, from what we can still enjoy of it, that final run does hold up pretty well, and the series still feels just as strong as that previous year when you watch it now. But maybe it just seemed too different after the Bootsy and Snudge years, and the series ended its hugely successful four-year, 154-episode run in June 1961, and was never seen again. One thing watching this show has taught me is that I think I would have really hated army life if I'd been forced into it in the real world, especially if I'd been forced to spend my years alongside Flogger and Bootsy and the rest. But this set of characters in their black and white, slightly old-fashioned and somewhat ramshackle world actually turn out to make a surprisingly entertaining few series of television, which, given how primitive a lot of TV from that era can look and sound, is not a bad thing. And I found watching the show to be, on the whole, a thoroughly entertaining experience. So if you do decide to give the army game a go, even if you find it a struggle at first, do try and stick with it, because it will reward you with quite a lot of fairly harmless fun, and there are a lot of great performances from some television icons, some of them at the peak of their popularity, to be found in it. And the army game does act as a platform upon which so many other military-themed comedies were built. Thank you. Major, and this time they've spoken the truth for Claude Snudge. This is indeed your true life story. We have some presents, not just for you, because you're so generous, for you to share with other people. Would you please accept these magnificent television sets, one for each hut in your camp? Men
Many thanks to Martin for that. Yes, thank you, Martin. We've got the army game, haven't we? We have. We've watched about two. I think, you, yeah, we, we've only skimmed the surface. We have I think very think, much skimmed the surface. I say. don't think we even saw many ones with Hartnell in. No. It was Bill Fraser. Yeah. There are ones with Hartnell on there, but we just haven't got around to them. But Martin's show, Vision on Sound, continues yes, apace. It does. And we'll be going into 2023. Yes. With new material. Yes. Well, we know that, don't we? We do. <laughs> yeah. We did some. Yeah. So, yeah. So, say no more, say no more. Yeah. But now, uh, Paul and his mum, Pat, return to look at... Father Brown. <laughs> Hello listeners, it's me, Paul the Shayetti. I'm here to, uh, well, this is a bit of a funny article really. I, I did the uh, main part of it, well, I think probably when we were still in lockdown. And uh, then um, um, around the archives had a little bit of a, a rest and wasn't being produced monthly. So the the, the central part of this episode uh, was recorded, but I feel like I need to come back to it and add something because... We're talking about Father Brown this episode, not the 70s version, but the the, the teens version. And my mum and I both watch it, and I have a friend who is the script producer, I think is the title, uh, my friend Neil, and we chat about Father Brown, and then I tell him about what I'm doing on the Shy Life podcast, and all of the uh, uh, over-the-top plot lines I'm doing, and he, uh, yeah... <laughs> Is it the, the two the two jobs aren't really comparable, and in, at least in that my podcast doesn't appear on the BBC, whereas Father Brown does. But uh, anyway, I recorded with my mum about Father Brown, as you will hear in a minute. But I don't feel like for those who don't know what Father Brown is, um, I feel like I, I need to give you some facts before we get into that. So I guess Father Brown is well, he's a detective. I guess, is he a character that's known all over the world? I guess he is. The character was created many, many moons ago by G.K. Chesterton, and uh, there were short stories, and there have been a number of different attempts at um, bringing the character to the TV screen. Um, But the, the version I'm talking about, as I say, is the version with Mark Williams playing Father Brown. Now... It, it, it's because it's made now, and this may come up again when I talk to my mum, um, it's a kind of fictionalised version of the 1950s uh, and, and the early 1950s at that. It, everything's probably nicer than it actually was. People are probably nicer than they were. But, uh, but who knows? Obviously, there were lots of murderers, so not everyone's nice. But it is a sort of fantasy version of the early 1950s. Well, at least I presume it is. Or maybe the village where this all takes place, Kembleford, is just nicer than the rest of the world. But uh, anyway, it doesn't really matter because it works fine for the series. And, and, and they get to cover subjects that perhaps would never have been uh, covered if this had been made 30 years ago, uh, which is cool. At the time of recording this bit, uh, there's probably been another season since I talked to my mum. So we're now talking about nine seasons and I think a hundred episodes 
I still have one or two episodes to watch from the 2022 season. I've been a, a very bad viewer, but it, it's one of those shows that is shown in the afternoon schedules on the BBC. And so there's like 10 episodes and they show, they show them back to back over a two week period, uh, which I, I'm not sure I agree with. I also, what makes me so cross, and I think it's probably because the budgeting for the show comes from a daytime budget, it can't be repeated in the evening, because to me, it would be perfect for a Sunday evening, for Sunday evening TV, in the same way as Call the Midwife is um, sort of shown on prime time. There's absolutely no difference in quality between Call the Midwife and Father Brown, says he who's never watched an episode of Call the Midwife. But there really isn't. Father Brown could easily be screened in the evening and get bigger viewing figures. Not that anyone gets big viewing figures these days. But, yeah, I believe it's shown in many other countries, and in other countries it is much more prioritised as a sort of big show. I just feel that it's so good that it's kind of a little bit lost. I know it's it's sort of theoretical these days, really, isn't it? Because you can watch things on catch-up. I mean, that's how I'm watching Father Brown myself. Like, six to eight months after it was actually on the screen, it's still available on iPlayer. I buy the DVDs. It doesn't really matter in the way it used to. But the TV collector in me... Well, I mean, I'm mean, glad you can buy it on DVD because so many programmes that I like these days, newer shows, they're, they're shackled to you know, Netflix or Disney. You, you can't go and buy a, a Blu-ray copy. To me, it just makes no sense whatsoever. But anyway, enough about that. So, yes, Father Brown is played by Mark Williams. He's been playing it since 2013. And very good he is too. The only other really continuing character has been Mrs McCarthy played by Saoirse Cusack I hope I pronounced that right she's been in it from the start too now there have been there have been a number of different policemen over the nine seasons let me see Inspector Valentine 2013 2014 Inspector Sullivan 2014 to 2015 Inspector Mallory 2016 to present yes Inspector Mallory is the um, the inspector who has sort of sort of been in, in the most seasons now. The early inspectors, which Father Brown is always getting in the way of, well, <laughs> at least that's their opinion. Of course, Father Brown, uh, more often than not, solves the case. The early inspectors were good, but uh, it's kind of nice to have a more longer-running inspector. So, yes, the most current one is, has been, um, been there over six years now. There, there, there were sergeants, Sergeant Albright, 2013 to 2014, but a better known one is Sergeant Goodfellow, who's been in the show since 2014, so that's probably the second season. Now, there are some other supporting characters, including Felicia, a socialite, a bored socialite. Uh, she was in the show 2013, 2016. But these characters, they still sometimes pop back for like the odd guest appearance. We've got Sid, who is um, he's sort of like an artful dodger type. He he was a regular 2013-2016, but there have been a number of guest appearances, and he's also in a number of the 2022 episodes, which has been nice. Then there has also been Bunty, who sort of came in when um, Lady Felicia left. She She's also a kind of bored socialite, um, but perhaps a little bit younger. She was in it 2017-2020, so, so the main the main characters are usually Father Brown, Mrs. Mrs. McCarthy, and then a mixture of whether it be Lady Felicia, whether it be Sid, whether it be Bunty, 
then the police inspector, whoever that, that might be. And uh, 100 episodes later, the show is still going strong. And uh, it's always it's always very watchable. But uh, I think that's all I need to say, really. So I think we can go into what I recorded with my mum now. Uh, so, yeah, this is just... I thought it would just be nice to share with you my mum and I talking about TV, talking about a show we both like. If it wasn't Father Brown, then it would have been Neighbours. Um, so, um, yeah, you got Father Brown this time. <laughs> At least Father Brown's not been axed. <laughs> Sorry. Ah, dear, oh, dear. Ah, have a listen. Me and my mum talking about Father Brown. Hello, Round the Archives people. It's me, Paul the Shy Yeti. I'm here with Dilly the Cat and also with my mum again. Hi, mum. Hi. Um, this time I thought we'd, we'd talk about um, Father Brown, but I haven't done much research and I've forgotten all the names of the characters. But but we'll, we'll do our best. Uh, Dilly, you can help me, won't you? Dilly. Uh, mate, we're mainly talking about the version of the show that uh, is is showing now. There was a version. I don't know if you ever saw the version from the 70s, but the, the current series has been running for quite quite a few years now, about eight, eight or nine series. I but think I've seen... I think I've seen most of them because with um, COVID, they put on probably 10 episodes, but I, I think... That was select. I don't think it was. They ran necessarily concurrent. I may be wrong, but Lady Felicia was in some of them, and then she popped out, and then she was back again. And but it, it may just have been that they said she had to come back from Rhodesia, and so that they fitted it into the story. But because yeah, um, there's the, the there's sort of different. It's been running such a long time that the obviously the father obviously Father Brown has remained the same. And his um, housekeeper, but uh, some of the supporting characters have, have have changed, and there was the the chauffeur as well, wasn't there? Some of them still come back for guest appearances. But... Yes, because he went away, didn't he? He went had a period in jail, and then he got out of jail, and then he went. He was supposed to go be going over to Rhodesia with Lady Felicia and help them there, wasn't he? Because her husband had been sent over there by the diplomatic office or something so he's he's come back i saw uh, one quite recently with him and, and his wife well, the way he, that yeah all the, I was, the, way, the way they 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 share it with them repeating old ones so it must get a bit because when they have a new season there's 10 episodes but they show them every day for two weeks at, during the afternoon on bbc and um uh so the season has gone through very quickly but then they sort of do repeats for a couple of weeks afterwards. But this year, because of COVID, they didn't get to record a new season. So, but they're still showing it in that slot, just repeats and things. But I, I, uh, I but I can't remember now why I started watching it. Other than I, I know I was, I found out that a friend of mine um, worked on the scripts and things, and I don't know if I started watching it because I was talking to him, and I thought, oh, well, I'll watch it, and then I kind of. Like enjoyed it, and and then and and, and you were what you you already watched it. This was probably about three or four years in or whatever. But you you already watched it independently. Yeah, I I was trying to remember because Bunty didn't come into it. The character of Bunty did she? The um. No, she replaced the first. <laughs> she she sort of the replacement for the first sort of. She's related to the. Oh no, Lady Felicia. Lady Felicia. Yeah, yeah. That's right. 
yes. But I, so I can't really remember much before her at all. But I started watching them because I'd read a Father Brown story, G.K. GK Chesterton. Um, and he used to, he lived in Beaconsfield, which was only about five miles down the road from my home. And in fact, my father has had a brief spell as an electrician and he went and did some work in his house. So, mm-hmm. you know how it is, it's a very tenuous mm-hmm. um, link, but um, I, I enjoyed the story. And and so I started watching them. I don't, I don't think... It's a long time since I've read any Father Brown stories. I don't think in in the series he he's made it all his own. He he isn't like the Father Brown in the um, mm. I don't I don't think in the books. Well, they um, they have to bring it up to date because well, yeah, it's although, although it's although it's set in the fifties, I think so. Um, yeah. I should think Chesterton was probably writing them in the twenties, thirties, something like that. Yeah, I'm sure Father Brown's more more liberal and and, and were more more Christian than a lot of the the religious people <coughs> of that time would have been in real life. And I don't, I don't, of course, only, only reading say one or two of the short stories, I don't remember there being the arch French criminal coming into it. But on their other hand, uh, they're Probably was. I don't know how many stories he actually wrote. So there you are. The task of the day. Find out how many stories of Father Brown G.K. Chesterton wrote. Having a returning villain does sound more possible, but um, I don't know about the supporting characters. The I don't know if that if they were in the book. Do you, do you remember? Did he have? Did he oh, have those? No, I don't remember. No, I don't remember anything like that. I imagine it was a, a small country parish. But well, as I say, I, I didn't read that many of them at all to see if there was a link to all of them. It was just that it was just um, perhaps a bit like Sherlock Holmes. They they knew how clever he was and they came to him with the problems. But I, I can't remember. I mean, it must have been 60 years ago since I read it. Huh. I think it's uh, the Covent series is sold all over the world. I think in some countries it's sort of on prime time and... And they have quite a following. It's almost a shame that it's it's tucked away when it is over here. Yeah, I mean, again, it's. It, I like the quirkiness of it. The fact that the housekeeper always has a hat on. She wakes up in the middle of the night and is woken, startled by a thief or something, and she comes downstairs with her night clothes on, but she's got a hat on. Huh. Um, lots of different different things. And her strawberries. She's famous for her strawberry scones. So whenever they can get. A scene with the meeting strawberry scot and it's these little things that if you watch things regularly it's it sort of it feels cozier you know them and you know the characters and i think it is actually made by father brown the the person that plays him whom i'm sure you'll remember his name but i can't because it is it, it's not the words necessarily he says it's just his expressions convey so much more yeah, I still. I mean, I have. I have spoken to my friend about this and said, you know, can it not be repeated late, like on a Sunday evening, uh, as well as the time it is? But I'm. I think it's all, you know, red tape and it's paid for by one budget and it can't be, you know, uh, think that they make they make rules that, that sort of defeat. Uh, well, they're, they're they are their own worst enemy in that case, um, <laughs> because the potentially it could be a lot bigger than it is. How how does they get onto UK Gold then. Do, do, does UK Gold 
have to want to buy them or do they have to be a certain age? I don't, I don't know anything about UK gold or whether what form that still even exists, but uh, well, um, I, or, well, there are there are ch- certainly, I suppose you get the channels which have sort of detective series like the Sweeney uh, uh, and things like that. Yeah, the um, last of the summer wine i mean that they've all appeared on uk yeah. gold as well as, well as still, certainly dad's army still appears on bbc as well yeah but they presumably were paid by paid for with different money and it, 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 it's almost like they've been a they, they perhaps didn't make it expecting it to be such a big success that otherwise they wouldn't have i don't know otherwise they wouldn't have made it that for, for that just well, I mean, bizarre that they can't they can't um you know, there are sometimes there are comedy shows that start on BBC Two, that then get promoted to being sh- shown on BBC One. But presumably, the the the, the finances change hands, or you know, I don't, I don't know. It just it just seems a shame that uh, you know, despite all these other channels that might repeat it in a few years' time, they're still not going to be mainstream big channels as far as you know getting. Big ratings. I mean, I can't say anything different between Father Brown and Call the Midwife as far as in terms of quality. I, I would I would have thought the same audience that watched that would watch Father Brown, but if they don't know it's there or they haven't seen, it really needs people to just once you've seen a few episodes. That, that's the thing. Even if you don't if you don't start watching it, you you uh, you can't get to like it. And if it's not on at a very good time, why would you? video it randomly you know why would you randomly set the video for it if you didn't even know whether you'd like it sort of thing i mean i would but not not every but not everybody is is like us tv um aficionados <laughs> it is quite static it doesn't move on whereas a program like called the midwife they deal with issues so and it's it's ranged from what the end of the um second world war and they've got up into the 70s i think now and so that is quite clever because it has brought new medicines and new procedures into into it. And so that from a historical point of view, a bit like the Queen, the, the series they've done done mm. there. But then it, it, what is strange is is how it takes people's imagination. If you think of Norman Wisdom, it was okay over here. But I mean, he was a great hit over in Bulgaria. I mean, they fated him as a um, well, I don't. I don't know. He got he got some medal or something, didn't he? Mm-hmm. So, and, I, and I mean, you, you know, I can't really see that he was ever made much of over here, really. I look forward to maybe maybe uh, maybe in, at some point we'll uh, we'll watch an episode together when we when we are able to be in the same room together. We we'll watch an episode and talk about a particular episode in the, at some point. But uh, uh, yeah, that'd be but, fine. But for now, um. I've, with just just a few just a few of our thoughts, and uh, it's definitely worth definitely worth uh, checking out if you haven't seen it. Certainly, uh, yeah. if you like quirky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we all like quirky. All right, thanks, thanks, Mum. Okay, bye then. Bye. Well, listeners, there you go. Uh, I hope you enjoyed that. It's it's just nice to get my mum on round the archives, and. Uh, yeah, Father Brown, along with Neighbours, are two of the shows we both um, used to both watch and then sort of talk about. I'm sure at some other stage we can talk about the, uh, I think it's 1970s version of Father Brown. I think one of my DVD sets for the current series came with the uh, 
at the old series as a, as a, a bonus disc. So, um, so yeah, at some point I'll have to check those out. But uh, okay, uh, Father Brown, I hope you enjoyed our little chat. Okay, bye bye for now. Back to Andrew and Lisa. Many thanks to Paul and Pat for that. Yes, very interesting. We've often said that Father Brown should be on at prime time. Yes, he should, yes. But Paul's show, The Shy Life Podcast, has notched up 100 episodes this year. A record, I believe. Yes. But now, here's Michael Seeley looking at... Sutherland's Law. Several years ago, I was pondering whether to write and research my third biography, and I settled on two widely different actors. One of them was Ian Cuthbertson, and I hope that's how you pronounce Ian. If not, never mind. He was usually cast in positions of authority. He was a very big man. What else could he have been? Usually, usually on the correct side of the law. And he seemed to dominate the 1970s television landscape most notably with three major series. The first was a historical romp called The Borderers, which featured the lethal rough and tumble of Scottish history on the borders during Mary Queen of Scots' time. He played this powerful historical figure, the ambitious Lord Warden Sir Walter Sesford, who was a ruthless man, heavily wigged and heavily bearded, and as rough and ready as any of those who lived and survived on the borders between England and Scotland. Not many episodes survive, but a few leaked onto YouTube a few years ago, and it's pretty good stuff. Then there was Budgie, where he played Charles Endel, a Glaswegian gangster based in London, and would later return home after a spell in jail, in a short-lived spin-off series called Charles Endel Esquire, a very amusing series with one hell of a theme tune, a titty-boom-boom, a (laughs) titty-boom-boom. It should have had a longer run. Six episodes wasn't enough. In a 1976 press interview I dug up from the uh, British newspaper archive, he said people also remembered him for playing the headmaster in a BBC classic serial, Tom Brown's School Days. And this was, I think, 1971. A memorable performance indeed, and another wig. Uh, You can also watch this on YouTube. Had I been old enough to watch that, I think I may have been put off school for life for its judicial savagery. Let's put it that way. It's not very pleasant. Outside of these series, and during the 1970s, you'd have found him in The Stone Tape, shouting like the rest of them, Danger UXB, Ripping Yarns, where he plays a lustful doctor with two bullet wounds in his shoulder, the last episode of Survivors, and naturally he has to appear in Doctor Who, 
where he plays his uh, character as a Londoner because he couldn't comfortably manage the Australian accent that writer Robert Holmes wanted. He often liked his con man characters to come from Australia. He appeared in many other programmes before he suffered a massive life-changing stroke in the early 80s and I think it took him two years to recover. And as a result, his memory suffered and he felt he could no longer perform on the stage nor take on large roles on television. He was still in demand, but he tended to be seen on multi-take film series. No more the long memory test of a studio session. I remember him appearing in a couple of scenes of Inspector Morse where he played John Thor's mentor and inevitably getting murdered. Plus a few wonderful comedy terms for Rabsine Nesbitt where he appears as a judge. Oh, and of course that was made in his beloved Glasgow. I'm sure a lot of you remember Supergran. I never liked it at the time, but Billy Connolly sang the theme tune. And he only did that because he loved the actor, his favourite actor in fact. And I have that on good authority, my memory of a Saturday morning kids show interview. Cuthbertson himself was a very educated man. He came from a family of doctors and had intended to enter the law, but by the 1950s and 60s he was a stage actor of growing repute and stature. So much so that in 1961 he became manager of Glasgow Citizen Theatre and later director of the Perth Theatre. In London he mounted some well-received and highly praised plays for the Royal Court, one of which he translated and directed himself, the scandalous French play Ubu Roy, or Ubu the King, if I pronounce that correctly, which was in 1966 already 70 years old and had been controversial back then for its apparent obscenity. This new staging featured Max Wall and David Hockney designed the set, so it's top-level stuff. But in 1965, there was a particularly controversial season of plays, one of which was called Saved by Edward Bond, which was about a dysfunctional South London family and included an unpleasant scene where a baby is stoned to death. It was banned by the Lord Chamberlain's office, so the Royal Court did the usual way of circumventing censorship by becoming a private members club for the English stage performers who could then watch the controversial performance legally. That did not stop Cuthbertson, being one of the associate directors of the Royal Court, from receiving a police caution. In the mid-70s he became rector of Aberdeen University, a role he took quite seriously and, as he would say, would nip up there as often as possible, though in a Scottish accent. And through this he gained a very positive view on the new generation. He and his wife did not have any children, relishing how much he was saving on school fees, but it makes it awkward for any biographer, I'm afraid. <laughs> he preferred to spend his money on yachting, his major passion, and who could blame him with the vistas the Scottish coast and his isles can provide? And these feature in the titles of, yes, I've got to it at last, Sutherland's Law. When Frank Cox took over the producer's job for the second series, he wanted to change the title sequence, which had been a gentle series of panoramic beauty shots of the Scottish mountains and coastline, presumably near Oban where a lot of the series was filmed, and also replaced the gentle music, which is appropriately called The Land of the Mountain and Flood by Hamish McCunn. However, I'm assuming it was his boss, the head of series Andrew Osborne, who ordered him to go back to the original, knowing how popular they had been. And yes, he didn't want the letters coming in, you see. Although they don't really sell you the programme as such, they give you the setting and that this man Sutherland, brooding over the landscape, is somehow a part of it. Despite its title, Sutherland's Law is not a cowboy series. 
Ian Cuthbertson is the Procurator Fiscal for this part of Scotland, a town called Glendorum. Now that's a good title in itself. Scottish law has great differences to English law because, before the Act of Union, it was its own sovereign country. The Procurator's Fiscal job lies between police work and the courts. He's a trained solicitor, and as far as I can understand it, he has cases brought before him either by the police or by private citizens, and he alone decides whether there is a case to answer. He will investigate sudden deaths and prosecute minor silver cases before the Sheriff's Court. He can conduct his own investigations and inquiries in or out of the office, and therefore he works very closely with the police and can direct them in any investigation. More serious cases are referred up the chain of responsibility to his superiors, the Lord Advocates and the Crown Office, where the High Courts become involved. There had already been a play called Sutherland's Law, but here the fiscal was played by Derek Francis, who we know more as a comedy actor. Why he was not picked up for the series, I'm not sure, probably because BBC Scotland preferred a native to play the lead for a series. They chose wisely. Cuthbertson dominated and won an award in 1973 for his performance by the Radio Industries Club of Scotland. The series is therefore neither a deskband affair nor a courtroom thriller, but our John Sutherland is no Columbo. In some episodes, he will confront the villains of the piece, of course, if there are villains to confront. And one memorable episode lies in the first series, where he confronts a gang of Glaswegian gangsters. Apparently unaccompanied, but the police are waiting outside, and Sutherland disarms one of the thugs quite easily. But this rough and tumble is rare. His greatest weapon is local knowledge, and a strong sense of justice. There are a large number of accidental deaths to be investigated, and sometimes they can be very distressing to watch, especially if they feature the deaths of kids. Naturally, he has friends in high places, some of whom are in trouble in some shape or form, but not to the ludicrous levels Charlie Hungerford and Bergerac seem to become involved each week, needing his son-in-law to rescue him. Always a how I remember the programme. One of his friends tries to frame him for a car accident, for example, while another turns out to commission burglaries for his collection of vases or porcelain. In the first episode, Sutherland lacks an assistant, which is called a deputy. And in the second episode, we meet the deputy. It's Gareth Thomas, an episode which typically no longer survives in the BBC archives. Only ten from the first series do survive, nothing from the second and third, but thankfully series four and five do survive, mostly intact, with just one episode missing. Gareth Thomas's first episode is preserved in creator Lindsay Galloway's novelisation of the series. Gareth Thomas brings his trademark intensity and humour to the role, and the characters do clash from time to time. However, he is fiercely loyal to Fiscal. One flashpoint was, I think it's the last episode, The Killing, where a man kills another man after a fiery road accident. Was it a mercy killing? Or was it out of revenge for the fact they had shared his wife? This sets Sutherland in conflict with Duthie, who gives a very powerful speech towards the end of the episode which divides the two. Duthie says it was murder, and Sutherland argues it was a mercy killing. But the verdict given by the jury, Sutherland declares, was his law, justice. Sutherland is a hard taskmaster. He is quite prepared to politely criticise and maul his staff if they put a foot wrong, sometimes when it is not deserved. For example, in one episode, both Duthy and Christine, and this was deserved, the secretary, played by Maeve Alexander, surely types and makes the tea, he says mockingly, try to trace a runaway girl by themselves without any police involvement, which could have been fatal, and Sutherland reminds them that they are not the police. But when that duty is done, he will make sure there are no further hard feelings. A wink and a drinky motion in one scene to Duthie later in the series. However, Sutherland enjoys constructive opposition from both his deputy and his secretary, and he allows them to answer back to him if they feel it is justified. 
According to the book, he hires people who will challenge him, and he certainly picks the right one in Duthie. There are some fabulously intense scenes between the two of them. From the second series, Gareth Thomas was replaced by the less intense Martin Cochran, who was Chedak in the Cage Rangersani, if we need a Doctor Who reference point, playing David Drummond. Oh, here's another one. Victor Karen, who's Inspector Menzies. Was it Mings? Was one of the Earp brothers in the Gunfighters. And for all you Raffles fans who love the adventures of a crook who likes upsetting the wives of men who smoke cigars with a band on, Inspector Mackenzie, but without his magnificent whiskers. Later in the third series, we have Virginia Stark playing another deputy fiscal. Since we cannot watch the second or third series anymore, we cannot watch the second episode, which was directed by Douglas Canfield, but also a new character is introduced, Sutherland's future wife, played by Edith MacArthur. She is a doctor in a hospital and can more than stand up to him when the moment requires. Occasionally he has to remind her that he is procurator fiscal and requires her, as his wife, not to interfere with cases, but sometimes their work will inevitably overlap. It is a good and sparkling relationship, and she often wins. From the first series, my favourite episode is The Climb, which revolves around Morris Reeves watching his brother fall to his death during a climbing accident on a sheer cliff face on a mountainside. An accident. Or was it Mutta? The scenery is stunning, the filming magnificent and giddying. It is not one for vertigo sufferers, and the older I get, the more giddy I am becoming. But the joy of this episode is that this is the same cliff face from which Sutherland's first wife died five years earlier. He has to climb this cliff face not only to prove a theory, but at the same time sell some ghosts. Whilst Gareth Thomas, having climbed down the cliff with him to the scree below, is sent back to the hotel at the foot of the mountain, unaware of the personal history Sutherland has with the mountain. Even Christine at the hotel, yes, she comes along as well, is shocked that the fiscal has been left alone on the mountainside with the weather closing in, and there's a real sense of fear. Is he going to come out of this alive? Thomas can be seen at his most intense, trying to think through Sutherland's motives. Resolute, they made the correct decision. But it's to ascertain how the other brother really got down the mountainside and where he dumped damning evidence. Glorious stuff, no music, just natural sound and tension. An incredible filming. In fact, mountain accidents are a recurring theme in this series, and you can sometimes catch Cuthbertson sliding down slopes to test witness statements in the th- fourth and fifth series. Whereas Duthie was an excellent climber himself, Martin Cochrane's character was less robust. In one episode, starring Duncan Lamont, did he throw a troubled teenager in his care off a mountainside in anger for his cheek? Or was there something else going on? And yes, there was something else going on. The subject of the wife's accident and death comes up in the fourth series episode where their only son, Ian, comes back from Canada at the behest of Sutherland's new wife. Their relationship has never recovered from the accident because the father will not tell the son the precise circumstances of the fall. It is suspected that the accident was, unfortunately, his mother's fault and John just wanted to shield his son from the truth. The son moved to Canada working as a mining engineer, which was rather handy because at the hospital where his stepmother works, some sweaty gelignite is discovered in the cellar, left over from construction. Well, rock is very hard to dig with a shovel, you see. And he is best qualified to take it outside, and only his father's confidence in him allowed the police to allow him to perform such a dangerous task. Although they were having some sort of approachment in their relationship, apparently a discussion over how to drink whiskey was the final straw. Ah well, can't win them all. So in the end, Sutherland's Law. It's probably an idealised version for us to wish how our legal representatives and overlords really behave, with integrity and compassion and patience and correctness. 
whereas the truth is probably somewhat less than idealised. But at the end of the day, Sutherland's Law, it's an excellent series. It's consistently good. Some episodes have that problem where a writer prefers to just develop his own characters at the expense of the regulars. Other episodes, as I've indicated, can be a bit distressing with its subject matter. Five years is a good run for any programme, especially considering the first series apparently had quite low ratings, which was recorded in the Programme Review Board memo I've seen. Well, the first series has been released on DVD. Unfortunately, there's no plans to release the other two. And they probably won't be released. But you never know, there may always be a chance to see them again somehow. Many thanks to Michael Seeley for that. Yes, thank you, Michael. Michael's book on the Nightmare Man is mm-hmm. still available from it Phantom is. Publishing. It is, and his updated version of the Kit Peddler. Indeed, uh, we've we've got Sutherland's Law now, haven't we? We have. Yes. Could, could you manage to find it? Was it hard to find or not? not? Really, I just looked for it on the internet. Oh, that's good. There. All right, well, yeah. that's good then. Well, we'll have to get round to watching it we one will, day. Yes, it's it, on the pile. It can join the list of many things to yes. watch. But to round off the episode and indeed the year, gosh, Mm -hmm. here's you and me looking at the first episode of Zed Cars. Good afternoon, Lisa. Good afternoon, Andrew. Well, we started with an A yes. at the very start of this issue, yeah. episode, edition, whatever it is. So <laughs> let's finish with a Z. Okay, a Z? A Z. Or a Z. A Z. A Z. Well, um, what was it uh, Liz Sladen used to say that American sort of fans used to say that how much they loved her appearance in Z cars. Yeah. And she used to say, well, I was never in Z cars. What are you talk- <laughs> talking about? You mean <laughs> Z cars. She was very insistent on that. Yes. But Zed Cars. Yes. Four of a Kind, the very first episode. Yes, which celebrated its 60th anniversary at the start of this year. Yeah, 60 plus years of Zed Cars now. It's astonishing, isn't it? Yes. So, 2nd of January 1962. Mm -hmm. You don't remember then, do you? No. Neither do I. Neither do you. I'm not that ancient. It was only BBC One. There was no BBC Two at this point. No. Not for a few years yet. Yeah, so I was just looking at the BBC Genome sort of entries for 
that day. Mm-hmm. Andy Pandy was on for yes. the very young. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, I remember Andy Pandy, but I remember him in colour. Mm-hmm. I don't re- really remember him in in black and white. No. There was also an edition of The Boat Show okay. at 20 past six right. with David Coleman. Okay. Remarkable. Okay. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> edition of Tonight with uh, Cliff Mitchellmore. Yes. And Fife Robertson. Oh, gosh. Okay. Being, being very Scottish. Yes. But the first episode of Compact. Okay. High Art Indeed. Yes. A new series by Hazel Adair and Peter Ling. Mm-hmm. Mm, there you go. Eight o'clock. Here's Harry, the jacket. Mm-hmm. So Harry Worth. Yes. With Derek Geiler and Leonard Williams. Yes. And Leonard Williams. Mm-hmm. Will immediately turn up again in Z Cars for a Kind yes. as Sergeant Twentyman. He will. And you like Sergeant Twentyman. We love 21. Sergeant Twentyman, yeah. Don't, don't yeah. you? But here we are. Z Cars for a Kind by Troy Kennedy Martin. The call sign is Zulu. They call them Z Cars. There are two young constables in each, ready to deal with trouble as it happens. The search for four young men to crew the new cars in the t- tough and troubled district of Newtown. Written by Troy Kennedy Martin. Directed by John McGrath. Mm-hmm. And then there's the news and challenge mm-hmm. with Raymond Baxter introducing the year, the story of a year of science. Mm-hmm. Talking about spacemen and things like that. Okay. It says producer Glyn Jones, mm. which surprised me if that is the Glyn Jones. Mm-hmm. But OB sequences directed by Michael Latham and Innes Lloyd, okay. no less. Yes. So it's a small world sometimes. It is. But anyway, how do you think Four of a Kind works as an introduction episode to the new series of Zed Cars? I I think it does it really well. I mean, Mm. you don't actually... You you do get each of the main characters introduced. Yeah. But there's more of a focus on Lynch and Steel. Yeah. You get more on Lynch and Steel. You barely get any jock weir because he's... Yeah. He's been in a rugby match and been trodden on, and he's barely conscious. <laughs> well, I'll go through the, the yeah. order of events. And you get a tiny later. bit of yeah. Brian Blessed as, as Fancy Smith, yeah. but it's mostly Lynch and Weir. Jigging. <laughs> yeah. Lynch and Weir? Yeah. yeah, not Lynch and Weir, Lynch, Lynch and Steel. Steel. That's right. Even. Yeah. This was broadcast live, yes. which is astonishing. Yes. Because you can't, you can't really tell that no. it's live, can no. you? No. I mean, there's, there's a fair bit of pre-filming, so they've sort of yes. covered themselves there. Mm-hmm. Um, and we start on film, don't we, in a yes. graveyard. Yeah. And we thought this sort of graveyard scene is effectively their attempt at killing off Dixon of Doc Green, isn't oh, it? Oh, yeah, or killing off the character of, of yeah. a George Dixon character. Because Dixon, of course, dies in the blue lamp and yes. comes back. Comes back for the television series. For the TV series. Yeah. But this is all about um, sort of what. Mm-hmm. Sort of pay, paying his respects at the grave yes. of Reg Farrow, yes. isn't it? Mm-hmm. Who's been shot down in yes. the course of duty, just in the line like of Dixon? Duty. Yes. And there's this thing about he, he had a a bicycle. Yes. Not a car. No. Well, it's not only that. I think the idea is that the, the implication I get is that he's an older policeman. Mm. Yeah. And if they had cars and a crime patrol, they'd have younger PCs yeah. who would have been more able to deal with it. I mean, they still could have got shot. Yeah. A, you know, a gun is a gun, yeah. but. If there's two of them rather than one, maybe they're more prepared. Yeah. I mean, nice little detail is that the opening theme music mm-hmm. continues over the first film sequence, yeah. much like the opening music for Doctor Who continues into the episode of yes. An Unearthly Child. Yes. 
But yeah, what what's at the graveside? And Barlow sort of is lurking in the bushes, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, he's at the grave. So we should say what what yeah. is played by Frank Windsor. Frank Windsor. Yeah. And Barlow is Stratford Johns. Yes. But yes. yeah, Barlow sort of leaps on what from yeah. the bushes, he does. doesn't he? Yeah. And yeah. I don't quite believe that because surely no. he'd recognise what from behind, wouldn't well, he? Well, you would have thought so. You'd hope so. so. And what yeah. even says that you need glasses at yeah. one point, doesn't he? He does. But this whole thing about Dixon of Doc Green, it's a bit hard to tell around this point, is that there's so much missing. Yes. That there's an episode from 1960, mm-hmm. The Hot Seat, yes. that survives. Mm-hmm. And there's one from 1961. Is it River Beat? Yes. I've not seen that. No. But most of Dixon is, is gone, never to be seen again yeah. around this point. Mm-hmm. And there is this thing that Dixon was very cosy. Yes. It's not quite so true in the 1970s. It's, it's definitely not true in the 1970s. Yeah. It's far from cosy. But the, I think there is a definite sort of feeling that yeah. Dixon is the old school at this yes. point and we're the new boys. Yeah. We're the new boys coming Come to in. kick your door in. Yeah. There's a card on, on sort of uh, Reggie Farrow's flowers, yeah, isn't one it? Of the from, lots of flowers. from the co op. Yes. And his old man Steptoe would say, Who's getting the divvy then? Yeah. <laughs> but I, I did that wrote down is Barlow pissed because <laughs> surely he'd recognise you would have thought so yeah. but I think I think the idea is that he's been lurking around the grave because he said the, yeah. the killer always comes back, back to the, to the grave, grave like dogs to a smell Yeah, and I think maybe he's just wrapped up in his own thoughts and he's cold yeah. and he just you know he just doesn't see what. They go off for a smoke, don't they? Yes. Uh, mm. And as with so many 60s series, there's an awful lot of smoking in Z oh, cars, yes. isn't there? Yes. I just wrote Siggies. And I also mm. wrote Loud Birds. Yes. As well as a load yes. of Tweety Birds. Because th- at that point, they go into the, they're in the studio, aren't they? For the, no, not, not, for the, not for the birds not for the bit. Birds. No, oh, right, no, okay. They're still on film. Birds. Noisy yeah. birds. I could say, I, I, if that was the case, they've just put overlaid birds. Yeah. But um, th- there's this line, enough to top him. Yeah. Capital punishment. Yes. And yeah, capital punishment is still a thing yes. at this point. Won't be outlawed for another year or so. Yeah. I don't think. The first shot in studio is actually in what is technically a Z car because it it's is. a Ford Zephyr, a Zephyr isn't it? Yeah. It's, yeah. it's what's battered old thing, which yes. it really sort of crunches the gears, yeah. doesn't it? And kangaroos up the road every now and then. Mm-hmm. They're not the best cars in the no, world. No, they are definitely not the best cars in the world but, at this point. But the idea is that the sort of new town is full of new estates full of terrorways and villains isn't mm-hmm. it so they want crime patrols rather yeah. than policemen on bikes and crime patrol was one of these sort of working titles for the series yes and you said that sounded very american it does sound very it? american yeah. crime patrol <laughs> in color yeah well in black and white yeah. what's wife has left him yes. hasn't she and gone down to london up to london up to london no, well it's down to london yeah i know but i think they always london's say down because it's yeah. south but yeah. it's it's yeah. the capital. So. But stay tuned for de- for sort of developments. Yes, with what's worth on, on that front, what's which won't worth? be for a while. No. But yeah. So there were two crime patrols with what in charge, mm-hmm. and he complains he's already working twenty four hours a day. Mm-hmm. And I like Barlow saying, "Well, you won't be the first sort of policeman to have to do forty eight hours in in twenty four. Basically, yes. I like the description that what is a keen lad as yeah. well." What is what a lad at this point? I don't think I, so. I, I'm not exactly sure what year Frank Windsor was born, but I think he's he's in his early thirties. Well, I can at this point. I can tell you because okay. we we of course have access to Mr. David Brunt's 
gorgeous book. Yes. BD to Z Victor One. Yes, which is highly recommended. The Z Cars case book, 1962. Buy it from Lulu, he gets more money. Yeah, that's good. yeah, don't buy it from Amazon because he only gets a pound. Yeah. Not even that, I don't <laughs> think. No, no, because so too. <laughs> if you sort of go into this lovely, lovely book, which I will do now. Yeah. You need good eyes. You need bloody good eyes, but yeah. <laughs> But Frank Windsor was born in 1927. 1927? Oh, he's older than I thought. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because yeah, you, you were saying about um, the sort of age of all the Z Cars yes. boys. Because Jeremy Kemp is 1935. Okay. Jimmy Ellis is 1931. Joseph Brady is 1928. Yes. And because you said he's older. He looks, yeah, but he, he looks older. He's 34 and he looks at least 10 years older than that. And Brian Blessed is 1936. So he's a baby. Yeah. He's a young, fresh-raised <laughs> baby, isn't he? Yeah. But yeah, we cut to the uh, police station mm-hmm. where we have Steel, Twentyman and Sweet. Mm-hmm. Sweet is sweet is the baby, really. Sweet is the baby. Yes, yeah. he's, he's not allowed out on patrol. He has to stay in the station and, yeah. and my desk. And if you've got a good quality copy of this episode, we should say this episode was released on VHS, wasn't yes, it? Yes, it was. And it might just happen to be knocking around on YouTube at the moment. Yes. I mean, we we could complain forever and ever how. Yeah. Most of Zed Cars is sadly locked away in the BBC archives and mm-hmm. deserves to be shown, or at does. least made available. Yes. But yeah, there's a big sign behind them saying a uh, fire prevent it, yeah. which you which you do. There is an episode later on called Fire by mm-hmm. Alan Pryor. Yes, oh, okay, which, which rhymes, which and, rhymes yeah. and uh, I could look it up. But mm-hmm. yeah, Steele is sent off to find Lynch, isn't he? Basically. Yes. Because Twentyman wants him down at the crossroads at the race course later. Yeah. And Lynch is round Steele's house. Eating his lunch. With his wife, Janie. Mm. And he's got a bottle of sauce that he's uh, yeah. smacking the bottom of yes. to get all the stuff out. Now, we should say about the bottle of sauce. Oh, gosh, yes. It's the proper BBC thing that you yeah. see a lot in sort mm. of Vision On and Blue mm-hmm. Peter and stuff. Where somebody's carefully felt tipped out all the... All the bits that could potentially be advertising. Yeah, the trouble is there's a dirty great shot of this, yeah. isn't it? So all you can assume is that Janie is bored yeah, and she's at home all the bits and she's out. coloured all the bits in the sauce really bottle neatly. out. Really Yeah. Just so it doesn't say... For both bottles of sauce. Yeah, for, because there's yeah. two bottles. Just so it doesn't say HP. HP. It's obviously HP because it's, that, so it's yeah. that shape. Yeah. She's got a black eye, hasn't she? She has, yes. And what's the story about that? Okay, well, she says that Bob had come home late for his tea the night before. So she... I think she threw the hot pot at him, didn't mm. she? Yeah. So he's ducked out of the way and she got in the way. Yeah. Basically, I think he's given her a thump. Yeah. For throwing his dinner out. Yeah. We'll talk about reactions yeah. to this later on. But this is seen as perfectly normal, yeah. really. But, but Lynch does gob out some food. Oh, at some God, There's yeah. a dirty, great spit of food. Yeah. And I told I told you, wind that back and have a look. It's very, it's very Timothy Dalton and I wrestle on in yeah. end of time. But mm. basically still returns and Lynch has eaten his tea, hasn't he? Eat lunch. Is it lunch? I think it's lunch. Well, that's a bit posh, isn't it, yeah. lunch? All right, dinner. Dinner, tea. Whatever. We could have this argument food. about. He's eating his food. Yeah. yeah. Then he drinks his tea. So Janie goes off to fry more chips. Mm-hmm. Have you ever fried chips? No, it looks really dangerous. <laughs> we don't We don't fry chips, no, do we? We, we, heat, a, we heat, have heat them up. Oven chips. You can get air fryers now, which are obviously less dangerous. But, but, but Janie's not happy, is she, where, she, she, is where, she, where she's no. living? Because it, it's all tearaways, isn't it? I yeah. think it's a bit of a rough estate. And obviously yeah. her being um, a policeman's wife probably gets the brunt of it from the kids and the, and the neighbours. Yeah. So. 
And I said, how many sugars? It's about four, isn't it? Well, well, Lynch has got a bowl of sugar and he puts at least three in yeah. and then seems to tip the rest of what's in the bowl. Yeah. You said it's real pertwee sugar, pertwee isn't it? Pertwee tea, yeah. 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 Lynch has got to go off to the the crossroads at the race course, hasn't he? Mm-hmm. But yeah, th- there's this thing about the sort of people in the estate don't like policemen or policemen's wives. It's like the Wild West, isn't it? Mm-hmm. What is it? Janie says she'll get respect from the neighbours for her black eye. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure whether that's a good situation or no. not. But then we've got Superintendent Phillips, haven't we? Yes. And sort of he's in charge of, of everything, really. Mm-hmm. And he wants to know who they're going to have on, on crime patrol. Yes. And he basically, he, he's not too keen on these younger lads, is he? Because no. they're all soft. Yes. That is the eternal um, lament of the yeah. older generation. 60 about the years later, generation. everybody younger than them is soft. Yes. So, yeah, nothing changes, does no. it? So we have what saying, well, they're not all soft. And mm. um, we've got Lynch. Yeah, Herbert Lynch. Yeah. And mm. I, li- I like Phillips's thing. Uh, Lynch is not a copper. He's a con man. And um, there's this thing about people say that here comes a Bobby mm. and Lynch. Yeah. Now that that takes us on to the thing that David David Brunt's book comes up with mm-hmm. that the original casting mm. is a little bit different. Yes. So Michael Caine mm-hmm. is listed as possibly Bob Steele. Yeah. This is just before he he gets his big break as Alfie as well. Yeah. So he wouldn't have potentially been in it long had he mm-hmm. got the part. And there is no Lynch no. in the early casting. Mm-hmm. There's PC McGinty, mm-hmm. who is going to be played by Donald Donnelly, mm-hmm. who's a name I didn't know. But basically he sort of got cold feet about appearing in a, in a TV series. Yes. You can see the sort of connection between sort of McGinty, who mm. I imagine is a bit sort of Irish stereotype, yes. isn't he? Well, so I, I said to you, you know, yeah. is he going to have a goat that's going to follow <laughs> them about and never be referred yes. to? And it's all going to be, oh, Begora, oh, I'm from the land of the little people yes. and, and all that. Mm. And apparently sort of um, there was even a bit of that with Lynch yeah. that sort of got crossed out James a bit. No. no, I'm not doing all that. And indeed the d- description of um, Fancy Smith yes. as being sort of thin and would wear Italian style suits. And David Rose said Brian Blessed couldn't be further from that when we cast him. Yes. If you can imagine a thin Italian styled Brian Blessed, not really. No. No. But yeah, Smith is described as a Ted in copper's uniform by yes. Phillips, isn't mm-hmm. he? He wears Italian clothes off duty. Yes. <laughs> How dare he? This is sort of set in round sort of seaport as well as Newtown, mm-hmm. isn't it? Yeah. And there's this line about seaport when the whalers come in. Yes. And that that's covered in a in a later in episode, a later episode yeah. isn't it? But I, I like the thing. There's nout wrong with Lancashire, but human nature. Yes. <laughs> But Twenty Man isn't too sort of keen on uh, crime patrols, isn't it? Especially no. when it means pinching all his men. Yes. But it, well, it's, it's a, on the beat, you keep the peace. He's concerned about them listening to music on the light program. Okay. But yeah, Weir's basically been playing rugby, mm-hmm. and he's 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 got virtual concussion, hasn't yes, he? Yes, he has got concussion. What and Barlow go to visit him and tell him to report on Monday. Yeah. And you said you're amazed he even heard that. Yes. And probably somebody would have to tell him, wouldn't yeah. he? But Barlow also says to him, what do you want money for? You'd only spend it. Yes. <laughs> Which I quite like. Meanwhile, Lynch is outside the race course and is stopping all the cars to talk to people because he likes, 
He likes a natter, doesn't and he? And to find out who And to find out which horse which won which race. race. Yeah, yeah. So and it's raining, isn't it? It's absolutely the, piddling the down. The rain's yeah. coming off the brim of his helmet. Yeah. November Lady won the 3.30 at 2-1. Mm. to one. He rings up to try and change his bet in the syndicate at the, at the station, no, doesn't he? I think he? he rings up to check or to tell him it's won and they're like, no, we've put it on, on October yeah. Lad. I think he's trying to do a fiddle at this point. Okay. Yeah. Cause, yeah, because he, he uses... Um, it's not a police box, is it? But it's like a little stand. Yeah. It's almost like the kind of um, phone that Top Cat would use in the <laughs> cartoon, isn't it? Yeah, but Barlow and Watt are watching him and how he works. Yes. Because he then pulls over Bernard Kay and Derek Ware in a car. Yes. And I just wrote, you can tell there's a punch-up coming, yeah, can't you? Derek Ware. Yeah. yeah. Gets to all the rough stuff. Yeah, Bernard Kay and Derek Ware have obviously nicked a van, haven't they? They have. Because they don't know the registration. And he crunches the gears a little Number, bit. Number, and he, he? he can't drive it properly. So, yeah, there's a bit of a fight, and they're mm. taken in they're taken into custard. E. <laughs> <laughs> Lynch is, is offered the Crime Patrol yeah. post, and he basically says anything to get in out of the rain. Yes. That, that's his sole concern. That is it, yes. So now over to Fancy Smith. Mm-hmm. With uh, Brian dancing on duty, yes, that would that would cause ructions. It would do, yes. And he he pulls over two girls, mm-hmm. uh, one including Dolores Crossley, who claims she's sixteen. And so, sort of what's going on here? That yeah. she's basically away from her. Yeah, she's sort parents. of run away from home, isn't yeah. she? Yeah. This thing that you like with Brian Blessed, that this is my patch and there's no trouble. Yeah. Because you said you always like sort of fancy Smith. Yes. What why what do you like about um, him? Well, I always think if you were in trouble and you called the police, you want you'd want Fancy Smith to come along and sort it out for you. Yeah, because he's he's a little bit of a tear away. Yeah, but he's very keen on the law being. He's uh, concerned with things being right. With, I right, think. Right. Yes. Yeah. And he gets very cross later on. There's there's a couple of cases. There's one where there's a baby abandoned, mm. and he gets really cross with the parents. And there's one where they the parents leave the two little kids on their own, and he's absolutely furious. It's yeah. it's it's actually lucky for the dad that he didn't give him a thump because you can see that he kind of wants to. So yeah, he's 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 very particular. You know, things have got to be done right to the letter of the law yeah and that's what you want but yeah this is my patch there's no trouble is his sort of thing yeah. um so he has a sort of conflab with with stratford johns mm-hmm. and warren is convinced that they almost dry at this point because right, okay. there's a look of fear in in his eyes and he can't <laughs> quite remember the line bear in mind this is live yes. it's worth mentioning that as zed cars goes on Although it is live, mm-hmm. they're allowed to do retakes after transmission, okay. which then get edited in to the sort of prints sold abroad and archived. Okay. So some of the surviving episodes are not necessarily ones that went out. everything that went oh, out, okay. which, which is interesting. an interesting way of yeah. doing it. But he, he says he's engaged, yes. isn't he? And he does this weird little sort of like almost shy look. Yeah, yeah. He? I wonder if that's the point at which he's not quite sure of his lines. Yes. I don't know. And basically, his concern to be in crime patrol is because you don't get you don't get the helmet; you get a flat hat. You can do a lot with a flat hat. Yeah, yeah. and he's he's told in there in certain <laughs> terms you cannot amend your flat hat. No, you can't put all things on it. No. This is, of course, the famous scene where you've got John Smith and the common men yes, playing in playing the background, in the background yeah. or three guitars, mood two, or whatever it's called. Mm-hmm. There's also a good detail here about his experience. Although yes. he's young, yeah. 
he is experienced because yes. there's a fight going on. Yes. Uh, you can hear, but he knows not to rush in. Rush in. Yeah. Let them work it out for themselves. Mm-hmm. Get a bit tired, yeah. and then he'll go in. And I think that's what convinces Barlow and Watt that he's the right choice. Yeah, and he knows what he's doing. Yeah. yeah. There's also a bundle down at the tab. Yeah, it's always a bundle it? down at the tab. There's always a bundle down, which is the pub yes. that we see later on in Friday night. Yes. When you've got um, Grandpa Mandigan mm. and uh, George from Georgia Mildred. Yes. <laughs> you've got Rio Fanning demonstrating a rocket using pint glasses, glasses which get increasingly more teetery the yeah. bigger they get how the Russians yeah. build a rocket yeah. Lynch says how to Steele how he's been promoted to crime patrol and mm. Steele is a bit surprised and a little bit envious I think yes, as well he's a, he's a bit jealous he looks a little crushed yeah because you know you, I think he thinks out of the two of them why hasn't he been offered it because yeah. he's the more steady one isn't he so Twentyman and basically everybody else bugger off down the tab yeah. to sort out the fight. It's like five extras. Yeah. Well, four a, extras. A load of people run past the yeah. camera. You yeah. don't see who they are. No. And it's then, really close to the camera, so it's a bit yeah. blurry. And then Davy Jones from the Monkees comes in. <laughs> yeah, because they basically leave Lynch... In charge. In charge, which is not necessarily a good idea. And he wants some point. change for the gas meter, doesn't yes. he? he needs to put a shilling in. And he wants a shilling for the meter. Yeah. And he wants... He tries to pass over Irish coins yeah. at one point, which mm-hmm. even Lynch won't take. No. No. Not necessarily a coin of the realm. It depends what part of Ireland it is. Yeah. Neither will he take farthings. No. Because they ceased being legal tender a year ago. Yes. January 61, apparently. Mm-hmm. But next through the door mm-hmm. is Anna Wing uh, from EastEnders. Yes. Her problem is that her son's gone gone a bit crazy, basically. Yes. With Does she call it an axe? She calls it an axe. It's actually a cleaver. And even even Steele calls it an axe. I'm going, it's not an axe, it's a meat cleaver. Yeah. It was a chopper for chopping wood, I don't well, know. I suppose it could yeah. be. I don't know, I've never had to chop wood. But her son Rodney, isn't it? Yes. His head went funny, didn't yes. he? Because he had an industrial accident. Yeah, he's, he, he fell off a crane. Something like that. And he's just come out of hospital. Um, he's got an axe and there's a baby in the house mm-hmm. or something, and she's worried. Yeah. Don't quite know what she thinks he's going to do because he's... well, perhaps she thinks he's going to going to yeah. be violent. But th- this is actually quite a good sort of section mm-hmm. for demonstrating how sixty years ago the police had to deal with stuff that was really not necessarily their problem. Yeah, I know there's this thing about a crime hasn't been committed, no. but they're also there to prevent crime. Yes. Um, but this is like sort of psychiatric hospital stuff, isn't mm-hmm. it? And they're they're sort of left to pick up the pieces. Yes. And that was true 60 years ago and is even more true now. Yes. So actually, yeah. we've actually sort of not only not made any progress, we've yeah. probably gone backwards on that point. Because yeah. there are yeah. so many police sort of cases where yeah. they're having to deal with stuff that isn't crime no, related is it that, yeah really. no. but yeah Steele goes round and there's a big crowd outside the the house isn't mm-hmm. it and he basically sort of tells them to bugger off and yeah. stop gorping well but yeah and he, but he asks them if there's any men any men that'll come that'll in and come help, help me, and no, nobody will. will so no. then he tells them to bugger off yeah but he has a word with rodney and he sort of persuades him to take his pills and he goes yeah. to bed and that's the end of it really yes. So I don't think he proves as much as a threat as they think he might. No, no. But it's basically, he went to chop some wood. But yeah. And the moment he touches the chopper, everybody assumes he's going to be violent because yeah. he has mental health issues. Yeah. But that, that's, that's the thing about the policeman picking up yeah. pieces that aren't necessarily their responsibility. Mm-hmm. He goes back home and there, there's Watt and Lynch 
and Janie. Yeah. They're sort of waiting for him. Yeah. Will he come on patrol? And he can start at six o'clock on Monday. That yes. seems terribly early to me. It is terribly what early. What time's he going to have to get up? Well, it depends how long it takes him to get ready. I probably know. not that early. About five o'clock probably. You take ages, I don't do, you? I do, yes. <laughs> Watt and Barlow are up till at least 2.30 in the morning yeah. sorting all this out, aren't mm-hmm. they? And all the other bits and pieces. Yeah. Yeah. But then Barlow's written a sort of acceptance speech or publicity blurb, yeah. hasn't he? I don't know if he's, he? Re- he, if he's written it or somebody else has written it, but he just reads it out. Yeah, he, so. and as he reads it out, the sort of theme music feeds in yeah. and we get a rather wonky freeze frame Yeah, and an even more wonky set of credits, yes. which are, which are all at a slant. Yes, they're all sort of slightly to the right. Well, he starts reading it, yeah, the, and then it fades, and then, into, then the... fades into Phillips reading yes. it, doesn't it? The finding of the new teams for the crime patrols presented no problem. All four men asked to volunteer and did so with enthusiasm. Well, that's debatable. (laughs) (laughs) There is no doubt that in Weir and Smith, Lynch and Steele, we have two new teams who, for keenness and single-mindedness to duty, will operate at the high peak of efficiency called for in this constabulary. Mm -hmm. That's a nice speech. It's not technically true in in certain details, but but it's a a good press release, isn't it? And in the real world, the press reaction was actually pretty good for this for those okay. episodes. I mean, yeah. David's book lists a, lists a load of things from the mm. Daily Mirror, the Guardian, and the Times. There is this thing about the police were not too happy about it. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll quote from David's book. On Wednesday the 3rd of January, a memo was circulated from the BBC duty office to Donald Baverstock, mm-hmm. Assistant Controller of Programmes. Mr Cave Brown Cave... That's a great name, isn't it? The head of the BBC's Northern Region programmes rang to say that Colonel St Johnston, that's a good name too, Mm -hmm. Chief of Lancaster Constabulary, complained about policemen A, dancing on duty in the street, B, betting on duty, and C, blacking wife's eye, brackets, admittedly off duty. Okay, that's all right then. That's all right, yeah. And that's (laughs) the, the third thing as well. Yes. I love the thing, the thing that dancing on duty it's in the, the street is the worst thing a policeman yes. could possibly do. Mm-hmm. But it's a, it's a great episode, isn't it? Yeah. Like, I always say, first episodes are really hard to structure, aren't they? They are, yes. Now, admittedly, Jock Weir doesn't get much to do. No. But he just lies down and goes, yeah. doesn't he? <laughs> doesn't he? I, d- I honestly don't think he knows he's in Z-cars by the end of the episode. No, no. <laughs> but Lynch and Steele and Fancy Smith all have mm. nice, good sort of scene-setting things, yeah. which does sort of set up their character. Yeah. I always think that Jock Weir is, is, out of the four characters, he's the one that never gets enough time, Yeah, really. He gets a bit of time is suspended yeah. when he's accused of, of theft alongside Fancy Smith. But I think his character is the least developed out of all four. Yeah. I mean, uh, we've not seen everything, so, no. we, you know... But from what I've seen, yeah, well, uh, so... I mean, that, that that's the thing that we always say. If only Zedcast was more available to people generally, mm-hmm. we, we could perhaps form better opinions on yes. some of this stuff. Yeah. But sort of, you know, based on what, what we've seen. But I, I have seen that episode probably about half a dozen times I was thinking about it. Because, mm-hmm. you know, with its original VHS release. Yes. And I do go back to it. Mm-hmm. I know I always say Friday Night's probably a better episode. Yes. Just for showing the the range of stuff they have to deal with. Mm-hmm. But to get all that into, into 
you know, one episode mm. to set the whole thing up. Yes. I think that's a very effective piece of work, it don't is. you? Yeah. Yes. If only BBC Four could just release a bit more of this mm. stuff. I'll just put it on iPlayer. Yeah. Because, you know, we've started mm. to make progress now with Vision On and Rentagos. Yes. Being and shown. kids' programs. Yeah. yeah. I, think, I think a selected run of Z cars yeah. would be very very yeah. worthwhile this, doing this year would have been the ideal opportunity celebrating yeah, the 60th anniversary that, and the centenary that, of that, the BBC that's the thing, just to re-release some black and white stuff on yeah. DVD would have been I guess the rights fine. issues are difficult yeah but you know they managed vision on out there so yeah. and we always thought that would never happen yes. but there you go yeah. great first episode mm-hmm. sets you up for Lots more yes. interesting stuff to come. Mm-hmm. And let's just say that Zed Cars was an absolute backbone of, mm-hmm. of the BBC scheduling for so long. Yeah, for the next It doesn't deserve years. to be forgotten, does it? No, it, it? doesn't. Yeah. No, no. no. So not at all. Let, let's get some more out there, shall yes. we? Yes. Yeah. But there you go. There's, there's us finishing on a Zed. Mm-hmm. There's us finishing 2022. Mm-hmm. There's us looking forward to 2023, which is a frightening thought. Yes. yes. <laughs> we have some ideas. Yes. We have some people who have yes. expressed interest. Yes, already. we've got lots of volunteers to which thank, next year. Thank you, people, yes. old all, and, and indeed all, new. All of you people that have, have, have agreed to do yeah. an article. Thank, thank you, you for much. encouraging us. Yes. Thank you to everyone for listening. Yes. Sorry it's been a bit sparse yeah, this year. Yeah, we, we, uh, well, we've done it once every every quarter yeah so hopefully <laughs> we, we'll uh, might be a little bit more frequent next year but I hope we'll so. see but we shall see mm. but thank you to everyone and we'll see you again soon and yes happy christmas and a happy new year yes happy christmas bye 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 have a listen to this for headquarters here today the finding of the new teams for the crime patrol presented no problems all four men asked to volunteer did so with enthusiasm with enthusiasm there is no doubt that in Weird and Smith, Lynch and Steele, we have two new teams who for keenness and single-mindedness to duty will operate at the high peak of efficiency called for in this constabulary. was episode 64 of Round the Archives. Starring Lisa Parker, Andrew Trowbridge, Martin Holmes, Paul Chandler, Pat Chandler and Michael Seeley. On the musical side, you heard Dan Tate and Paul Chandler. The script for Zed Cars for of a Kind was by Troy Kennedy Martin. And the producer was David E. Rose.
Many thanks to Paul and Pat for that. Yes. Now, Paul's show, the Charlotte Podcast, mm-hmm. has done more episodes this year than ever before. It has, yes. What's my... What's Rose complaining about? Rose wants to go out in the rain. Rose, it's raining. You cannot go out. 